Father, this morning we are just so grateful to be able to gather together as the church to sing these songs of worship to you. And Lord, I I pray that as we do that this morning, as we sing together, as we hear your word read over us as we already have from John chapter eight, as we study your word right now together, Lord, that you by your spirit would just encourage our souls. Lord, I pray as we always pray for this, Lord, that we would posture ourselves underneath your word. Lord, you are what determines what is true. You are what determines what is good. You are what determines what is right. We don't determine those things. So Lord, I pray that we would have a posture of humility underneath your word and we would receive truth from the scriptures. And I pray that specifically for this morning, Lord, as we engage in a topic, Lord, that our culture at large does not think what you have to say about this is good or right or true. And so, Lord, help us to receive truth from you. And I pray this morning, Lord, as we jump into this, that for anybody here where there is sin hiding in the darkness, that, Lord, you'll bring it into the light. Where there are people in the chains and the bondage of sin, that you'll give them the courage to trust you, that you can set them free. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you've been coming to Grace Hill uh, for some time, uh, actually, I just got the thumbs up. I think our sermon slides are back online, so you'll see those behind me. Uh, If you've been coming to Grace Hill Church for some time, uh, you know that we've been doing a sermon series, an installment of a sermon series every few months called This Cultural Moment. And we believe at this church that if our culture is busy talking about something and the word of God addresses that topic, then we as the church need to talk about it and teach what the Bible says about it. So we've done two of these so far. The first one we did was just on our polarized political age. And what does the Bible have to say about that? And the other one we did was on the topic of race, two things that our culture is very much talking about. And so I encourage you to go on our website and listen to those if you haven't heard them already. But this morning, uh, we are going to talk about a topic that is not just a big deal in our culture, but in every culture for all of time. Because this morning, we are going to talk about the beautiful and right gift that God has given us in sex. But see, when you look at how our culture has evolved in the way that they talk about sex, you'll notice that our culture has this fundamental belief that your body belongs solely to you. And that you have the right to do with your body whatever you want to do. So as long as everyone consents and there's no one getting hurt. And so when it comes to sex, sexuality, marriage, anything that pertains to this topic, why should there be any sort of limitation 
or boundary as long as no one gets hurt or is forced to do anything outside of their will. The mantra of our culture is that your body is your own. You have the right to do with it whatever you want. Quick disclaimer, historically many in the church have addressed the topic of sex and sexual immorality by talking about how sexual desire is a bad, dirty thing, something to be avoided. And that has always been completely misguided. The scriptures talk about sexual desire as something that is good, that is right, that is beautiful. After all, God is the one who created it. It was his idea. So this morning, I don't want to approach this topic by talking about how sexual desire is bad. I want to approach it by talking about how it is good and it's right. But here's the thing. The Bible has a way more comprehensive and beautiful view of sex than our culture does. See, our culture merely sees sex as something that is physical. And since you are the owner of your own body, and as long as you don't hurt anyone else, why can't you do physically with your body whatever you want to do? You have a stomach, so you eat food. No one tells you what you can or cannot eat. You eat what you want to eat. Your body has a sexual function. Why can't you use that however you want? But see, the Bible does not view sex as merely physical. I mean, if you ever wondered why sex is such a powerful thing in every culture for all of time, it's because sex is more spiritual than it is physical. It has more to do with your soul than it does your body. And I want to show you this by studying 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20 this morning. So we're gonna jump into this scripture to learn about this topic, but let me give you a little bit of context here. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And in chapter five, so the chapter before this chapter we're gonna read, Paul deals with something rather disturbing in that church. I'll read you chapter five, verse one real quick to give you this quick context. Paul says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you in, in that church. And of a kind that is not even tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So we believe that what Paul means here is that there's a member of this church in Corinth who is involved sexually with his stepmother. And Paul calls this sexual immorality. It was an abuse of God's good gift of sex. And Paul is furious with this church because it seems that the church is indifferent about this. It doesn't say that the church approved of it, but it also doesn't say that they disapproved of this going on. So in chapter five, Paul instructs this church on how to deal with this specific situation. And here in chapter six, Paul is gonna do some teaching on sexual immorality in general. All right, so let's, let's jump into that. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. I'm gonna read verses 12 to 20 for us, and then we'll, we'll go look into it more deeply. Here's what the word says. All things are lawful for me, but, all not, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul begins this section by interacting with some excuses that the Corinthians were giving Paul to justify their sexual immorality. All right, so if you notice in verses 12 and 13, there are two phrases that are put in quotations. So you'll see that phrase, all things are lawful, that's put in quotations twice there. And then you also see the phrase, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's also put in quotations. So the first excuse that Paul wanted to interact with was this argument that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all things are now lawful and we are free to do whatever we want. Jesus has come, he's fulfilled the law, he's paid for our sins on the cross, he has reconciled us to God and so because of that, I can no longer sin, I can now live and do whatever I want because I'm under grace and I'm no longer under the law. Come on, Paul, God is all about grace. He's not about the law. And Paul responds to this, not by disagreeing that we are no longer under the law. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are under grace. Your sins have been forgiven and you are reconciled to God. But Paul says, just because we are under grace does not mean that sin cannot bring destruction and domination in our lives. So verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then Paul moves to a similar argument that our culture finds compelling. Paul, why are you so concerned about sex? It's just a physical thing. We have sexual bodies. What's wrong with using our bodies how we want? We have stomachs for food. We have sexual bodies for sex. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul's response, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In Paul's writings, when he normally uses the word body or flesh, he normally uses the Greek word sarx, 
which kind of refers to our physical bodies. But here in verse 13, he uses a different word, the Greek word soma, which indicates what Paul is referring to here is not just the physical body, but that along with our souls. Our physical bodies will pass away. It says here in verse 14 there that that God will destroy them. I'm sorry, in verse 13, that God will destroy them. But verse 14 says here that just as Jesus was resurrected, if you're a follower of Christ, your bodies will also be resurrected. Our current physical bodies are mortal, but our souls that inhabit our current physical bodies are eternal. And so when Paul says the body, soma, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, what Paul is saying is that sexual immorality is not just something physical that we do, it's something spiritual. It does something to our soul. Comparing sex to merely eating food is not an accurate comparison. And so in verse 15 to 17, we are going to see what kind of impact sex has on our souls. Look at this, verse 15 to 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So this is what Paul is trying to say. God has created our bodies, referring to our souls, with the ability to be joined to another. As we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, at creation, God says, It is not good for man to be alone. God has created our souls to long for relational intimacy with another. That's God's idea. That's God's design. And so you, can, you may go, yeah, that's, that's why we have marriage, right? Two people can be linked together in, in that kind of intimacy. But when we look at our text this morning, here in verse 15, Paul doesn't first point to marriage. He points to the Christian's union with Jesus. Right, that's verse 15, the first part of that. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So if you're a Christian, your soul has been united to Christ through the gospel. I think Paul explains this beautifully in Galatians chapter two, verse 20. My favorite verse in all of scripture where Paul says this, listen, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so this is what Paul is saying. When Jesus went to the cross, because I'm united to him, I went to the cross. When Jesus went into the grave, I went into the grave. And when Jesus defeated death, he defeated death for me. Because Jesus lives forever, I will live forever in God's kingdom. We are united and nothing will separate us. So this is why Paul says at the end of our passage in verses 19 and 20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
Jesus came, he lived, he died on the cross, he was buried in the ground, and he defeated death in his resurrection so he could be in intimate relationship with you. And so Paul takes this glorious reality of our union with Jesus and then he asks a very interesting question in verse 15. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. What does sex have anything to do with our union with Jesus? What does sex have to do with the fact that we are united to Christ in the gospel? See, friends, this is where we learn that God's design of sex is way deeper than just a physical act. See, Paul quotes Genesis chapter two, verse 24 here, where we see the creation of marriage, where a man and a woman are joined together, sexual intimacy being implied here, and this causes them to become one flesh, united together. Their souls are linked together. This is a rich gift of like soul level union and intimacy that we so deeply long for with another person. And see, Paul explains to us in Ephesians chapter five that the marriage relationship should be like the relationship between Christ and the church, right? The union of marriage is to be a foreshadow, a taste, an illustration of the union that we will have with God in Christ for all of eternity. And so God designed sex to be something that is not just joining of two physical bodies, but the joining of two souls. And why do you think sex has always been and always will be an emotionally charged topic in whatever culture? Because sex touches the soul. So Paul says in verse 18, because of this, you must Flee sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any type of sexual engagement other than with your spouse in the context of a covenant marriage. Sex is a beautiful gift, but it is destructive when abused. I mean, that word flee here literally means run, right? You know, fight or flight, this is flight. You see something that can bring harm to your soul and you need to run away as fast as you can. You are not strong enough to fight it. And the reason that Paul says you must run from this is because this sin is different. You see that in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul is not saying that this sin is different because it's gonna condemn you more than other sins. No, he simply says this one is different because you're doing something to your soul. Think of sex like a welder. Welders are awesome because they can take two separate pieces of metal and make them one piece of metal. And that makes all kinds of 
amazing engineering projects possible, right? You don't have planes without welders and buildings and all these things. And when they're used properly, they're of great use, but when a welder is used improperly, or if you try to weld something to another piece of material that's incompatible, it is incredibly destructive and dangerous. Sex is what welds our souls to our spouse, and it is an incredible gift from God that is not just about procreation, but it's about connection, it's about pleasure. See, in the scriptures, we see two ways that our souls are united to another. Our union with Christ and our union with our spouse. In both of these relationships, these unions are initiated through a covenant. When you get married, you make a vow. You promise your spouse, no matter what, I'm sticking with you. When things are good, when things are bad, when we're sick, when we're healthy, when we're rich, when we're poor, till death do us part. This is a vow that I will have and I will keep till I go to my grave. I'm not leaving. And that's supposed to be an illustration of our relationship with Jesus because when you come to faith in Christ, God makes a covenant with us that he's gonna cover us in his grace. He's gonna forgive us of our sin and adopt us into his family. Even though we continue to struggle with sin after the fact, he won't leave us. He will never leave us, no matter what we do. I mean, this is Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The marriage vow is to be that strong and your union with Jesus is that strong. Both of these relationships where our soul is united to another are to be protected by the bond of this kind of covenant love. This is the beauty of sex. When a husband and wife enjoy the pleasures of sexual intimacy, they enjoy the union of their souls in the context and in the protection and in the security of their unwavering commitment to the other. And so sexual immorality is so serious, not because it's a dirtier sin, but because you're taking the welder of your soul and trying to bond your soul with something else outside of the protection of covenant love. When you have sex outside of marriage, you're welding your soul to another without covenant. When you fantasize about others or look at pornography, you're seeking to weld your soul to something that is not compatible. When one commits adultery, you weld your soul to another while destroying the covenant in your marriage. There is no such thing. I want, this, is, this is the Bible has to say about sex. There is no such thing as an inconsequential sexual encounter. No such thing because sex touches the soul. And when you seek to weld your soul in a way that it's not designed, outside of covenant love, it brings pain. 
And it brings rejection to your soul. And it brings disappointment to your soul. And it brings shame. The feeling that you are not the person you ought to be. Because your soul is not finding the rest and the intimacy it's looking for. Sexual immorality literally wounds the soul. And the more rejection and shame our soul experiences, the more we can look to sex to heal the wound, and the cycle begins. In fact, new studies are now showing that viewing pornography has the same effect on the brain as cocaine use. Watching pornography spikes our dopamine levels in identical ways as taking a hit of cocaine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter in your brain that helps you feel pleasure, right? But these kind of artificial dopamine spikes through drugs or pornography or whatever it is, when we seek those artificial dopamine spikes, it also causes a depression of dopamine levels in our brain. And so to deal with the depression, we look for another spike. But the more you do this, the more depressed our dopamine levels become in response, meaning we look for a stronger and more frequent spikes. And what do we have? Full-blown addiction. Studies now show that your brain can be just as addicted to pornography and sex as it is to a specific substance. Your brain craves it, your soul craves it, and you'll go through withdrawal without it. And so when Paul commands us to flee sexual immorality, it's not because Paul is anti-sex. It's because Paul knows the beauty of sex within marriage and the danger of its abuse. And so Grace Hill, we must take what Paul says seriously here. We must flee sexual immorality. We don't fight it, we run from it because this is something we don't take lightly. This is not a topic that we allow to be taboo and silently vow to not talk about it within the church. This can't be something that we keep secret and pretend it's not a problem because it's awkward to talk about. Because this is a sin we have to flee. We gotta run from this. I want you to see this, 79% of men ages 18 to 30 view porn at least once a month. And now 76% of women. This is not just a men's issue. This is everyone. I mean, if those statistics prove true just for this room, that's eight in 10. Eight in 10 people trying to weld their soul to something that's only bringing pain and shame. A study done in 2008 found that 93% of boys and 62% of girls had been exposed to pornography in their early adolescent years. The average age of one's first exposure to pornography is 11. And get this, in a study done in 2017 of the world's largest porn site, the most searched term on that site in 2017, this is so eerie, is stepmom. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 is horrifyingly prophetic. This has become a devastating, addicting, and enslaving problem in our culture and in the church. It's dangerous because it's done in secret. 
I mean, we are in unprecedented territory with smartphones in our pockets and other devices where we have access to it whenever we want with the ability to cover our tracks. It's an addiction that doesn't cost any money and that we can hide in darkness for years. And the longer the secrecy goes, the deeper, the stronger, and the more painful the addiction gets. In my short years, 11 years of ministry, I have seen pornography do nothing but wreak havoc in people's lives. In ruined relationships, in marriages, I've seen pastors fail because the shame of their sin keeps them in the dark. They keep hiding. The damage to their soul hurts their relationships and the addiction demoralizes them into thinking that they will never change. I mean, sexual morality is so shameful that we become determined to defeat the sin while keeping it secret and it never works. It just makes it worse every single time. So Grace Hill, we must flee this sin together. We must have a culture here where we help people get out of this. We gotta help people fight the addiction. We cannot shame each other. We gotta bring this to the light. I mean, we have to do something about this in our culture. This will ruin the mission of the church. We cannot be a faithful church and be a place where people are willing to come and seek help on this. We, we, we've gotta be a place that people can come. So here's what we're gonna do because we have to do something about this in our culture today. So men, I wanna talk to you first. Men, starting on Saturday, September 8th, at 8 a.m. in the morning, we are going to begin a 10-week class on sexual addiction and how to get free. It's called the Conquer Series. The class will be done at a confidential location and the roster of that class will be kept confidential as well. But listen, here's the thing. I am asking every single man in this church to sign up for this class. I know it's 10 Saturday mornings over the fall and that might be a big sacrifice, but I think this is worth something clearing the schedule for. If you struggle with any sort of sexual immorality, any, if you struggle with this, you need to sign up for this class. You can't do this on your own. Nobody can. You need help and we want to help you, not shame you. We wanna help you break free of this. We wanna help you flee this sin. So sign up for this class. If you don't struggle with sexual immorality, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sign up for this class. If we're gonna have a culture here of helping each other flee sexual immorality, then we need to all be equipped on this. And so I want you to sign up for this class so you can help walk your brothers towards freedom. And if you struggle with sexual immorality and you are determined not to let anyone know about this, then here's what I want you to do. Sign up for the class and just tell us you're here to help others. Just, just do that, because the Holy Spirit will use it. Sign up, come to this class. I think it's going to help a lot of people find freedom in their joy in Jesus. Let's fight this together, men. You need to come to this class, please. Do that. There's information in your bulletin. We're gonna be sending stuff out about this as well. Ladies, I wanna talk to you as well. Uh, statistics show that this is a women's problem just as much as a men's problem. But this has always been labeled as a man's problem. And that's probably made this, if you struggle with this, even more shameful and hurtful 
it's probably pushed you more into the darkness. And I'll, I'll admit this, due to this, there are less resources on this for women than there are for men. So if you're in a place where you need help, here's what we're gonna do. We're seeking to put together a women's support group on this. We actually do have some great curriculum for this. And if you're interested, I want you to either email Kim McCullough, my wife, or, or Julie Jones, Nick's wife. Your, their uh, emails are in your bulletin. And, and this is obviously gonna be kept confidential, but once we know how many women are interested in a support group, then we're gonna start putting together the logistics for that. But, but here's the bottom line to everyone. We have to flee this sin together. We've gotta flee this sin together. The culture is wrong. You are not your own. And that is such good news. You're not alone. And see, Paul gives us the way that we flee sexual immorality at the end of our passage. Verses 19 to 20, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I know that there are many people in this room who are carrying silent, dark shame. Secrets that no one has ever heard. And I know sermons like this are horrifying because you're reminded of the problem and then you're encouraged to bring it into the light. And the reason why we will never bring it into the light is because we fear the rejection of the people around us and we fear the disgust on their face. But see, the only way to bring rest and freedom to your soul from an addiction to sexual immorality is by experiencing the intimacy that your soul has with Christ. Christ has purchased you by giving of his own life. He has paid for your sin, including the sexual immorality on the cross. There is no punishment for you if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ and you're struggling with this sin, God has no wrath upon you. That was exhausted on the cross. If anyone ever tells you or makes you believe that God is angry with you for your sin, they are lying because God's anger and wrath was poured out upon your Savior. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. And God the Father is not ashamed to call you son or daughter. Your relationship with Christ is guarded by his love for you and his faithfulness, not your faithfulness. There's nothing that you have done, nothing that you can do, and nothing that you will do that will separate you from his love. You are united to him. You are not your own. You belong to Christ. And it is when your soul can find rest in being Christ's when the fear of exposure is released. When you find the motivation to take the step forward towards freedom. Grace Hill, Christ is gonna resurrect these mortal bodies into his kingdom where there is gonna be no more pain and slavery and shame and fear and sin and bondage. But while we are still in these bodies, 
We must, as a church, come together and help each other flee sin and hold fast to our Savior who has united us to himself. This will not be a church where people are forced into silence out of fear of judgment and shame. It's not gonna happen. Because nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And listen, if nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, then nothing can separate you from the love of your brothers and sisters in Christ. This will be a place where all people can find joy in Jesus. So I wanna pray for us as a church. I wanna pray for you, for anyone in here who is struggling with this. I wanna pray that God would allow us to help each other find freedom. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, I know there are people in this room because of what was just proclaimed over them are are scared. They're scared because they're afraid to bring sin into the light. They're afraid of rejection. They're afraid that this is all aspirational. Would God's church really love them in the same way that you do? And Lord, we're not perfect as a church. We're not. But God, please help this place. Please help this church to be a church where people can find freedom. Please help this church to be a place where every member, every person who calls this church their church home, please help them to believe that because there is nothing that can separate them from your love, then there's nothing that can separate them from the love of your church. And help us to be a church that will live that out. So God, I pray for anyone in this room that's struggling with this, Lord, that you would lead them to freedom, that you would encourage their soul, that you would, you would help them to believe that they are far more loved than they ever imagined. And even when they expose the sin or bring it into the light or let other people walk with them, they are still gonna be far more loved than they ever imagined. Lord, help us to be a church that ministers your redemption and your restoration to people. We love you, Father. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.